0: Most managers I've known over the years, and especially recently, espouse the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sadly, our actions don't always line up with our intentions. In this episode, Minda Hartz returns with an invitation for the practical steps that can actually create a better reality. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 552. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehovia. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I know so many of us have a desire for uh, being champions for justice in the workplace and being leaders in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and sometimes we fall short of the actions that we want to take in the behaviors to really not only be great leaders in that way ourselves, but also to influence positive change within the organization. Today, an invitation for us to get better at the work we're doing on these efforts. I'm so glad to welcome Minda Hartz back to the show. She is the founder and CEO of The Memo and an advocate for women of color in the workplace. She's a sought-after speaker and thought leader, frequently speaking on topics of advancing women of color, leadership, diversity, and entrepreneurship. She was named a LinkedIn top voice for equity in the workplace and was honored as one of BET's Future 40. She has been a featured speaker at TEDx Harlem, Nike, Levi's, Bloomberg, Google, South by Southwest, and many other places. She is an adjunct assistant professor of public service at NYU. She also hosts Secure the Seat, a career podcast for women of color. Minda is the author of the best-selling book, The Memo, and now her new book, Right Within, How to Heal from Racial Trauma in the Workplace. Minda, always a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome back.
1: Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me again.
0: I loved this new book, and it really just brought up so much for me on not only how much we still have to do is work for so many of us, and also some of the wonderful invitations you make on how we can all do better on taking the next step. And perhaps we should start with a bit of the statistics. Um, You start the book by talking and citing the State of Black Women in Corporate America report, and the report states, in 2020, black women held 1.6% of vice president roles and 1.4% of executive suite positions. What do those numbers say to you?
1: Yeah, they they make me really sad, Dave, actually, because you know, less than 2% of us are represented in powerful positions. And I know that there are more of us who are educated and have the skill set, but we don't always have access to the opportunities or we're not thought of for promotion. And so it tells me that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done within inside organizations and companies.
0: Yeah, the same thing comes up for me too as I read through the statistics. And there's so many things in the book that were really helpful to me in thinking about what can I do as a leader to take the next step? And one of the distinctions that comes up is a distinction from Carolyn Johnson. You cite her thinking on the difference between unconscious bias which I know many of us have heard, and unchecked bias. What's the distinction between those two?
1: I'm so glad you brought this up because I I do believe we talk a lot about the unconscious bias, you know, some of the things that we're not maybe aware of or we're not doing intentionally, but it's still causing other people harm for better or worse, right? And I think that we understand what those things are, micro, macroaggressions, but what often happens is they're unchecked. We don't do anything about them, right? The person who has been harmed doesn't feel comfortable having the conversation with the person who's, you know, done or said something inappropriate. And then oftentimes there's no accountability inside of our companies and organizations for this type of behavior. And so I really love how Carolyn Uh, Talks about that, about unchecked. You know, we know that, that bias exists inside the workplace, but oftentimes it's unchecked. And I think that's the part where we have a lot of opportunity to get it right.
0: There are a lot of stories you share about your own journey and the journey of other women of color in the book. And one of the themes that really comes out for me in this book is what you just said of. What is it that's unchecked and what's not being said that probably should be said? And I hope it's okay if I read a small passage from the book. You talk in the book about a situation in your career in the past with someone you call Carrie, and and you write, When I was going through my struggle with Carrie, I had colleagues I thought were friends, but none of them ever stood up for me. They mostly would come behind closed doors and tell me how they felt sorry for me and how strong they thought I was being. But what I really needed for them was to speak up in meetings or maybe even go to the human resources department when they observed bad behavior. During that time in my life, I always thought Carrie was the problem. I was only able to direct my frustration towards her. Yet all my colleagues who saw something and said nothing were just as much at fault. On my journey to healing, I also had to address that part of my pain as well. Those bystanders saw the racialized abuse and chose to do nothing about it. I read those words, Minda, and I thought, I know that's been me as a leader at times in the past, where I was the person maybe who didn't say something, maybe it wasn't the person who said the thing, but then didn't do anything as a result. And that's such a common pattern, especially for women of color to see this in the workplace, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's unfortunately a very common pattern. I mean, if someone did step up and say something, Dave, we'd be probably shocked, right? Because we're not used to anybody, you know, leaning into their courage in that way. And I and I think that if we normalize stepping up, showing up, then it becomes normal, right? Uh, but I think that we have to have that conversation because I think some people will sit back and say, well, I've never said something like so-and-so said, or I would never do that. But have you been around people who have and what did you do, right? The the harm is still being caused. So I think it's really important for us to take responsibility for our part in not doing anything, because that's just as damaging as the person who actually was on the front line of the offense, right?
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking back to situations in the past where I've seen this happen in a conversation or in a meeting. And I think sometimes like, uh, there's a lot of people in the room who are so surprised at what was just said that they don't necessarily know what to do. And I say that not as an excuse, but it's like the moment passes and then we're like, oh, was I supposed to do something? And I think it's interesting you, you point out in these situations that one of two things tends to happen when someone says something that's racially charged or inappropriate or not inclusive. Either everyone laughs— Or there's this awkward silence and then kind of the meeting just goes on and we can and should do better than that right
1: we absolutely should because if you felt it in that moment Dave how do you think I felt right (laughs) I think we have to we have to humanize that experience and it doesn't mean that you have to save the day or you know holler out at that person, but how would you want someone to show up for you in that moment? And so when, you know, for me I talk about in the book trigger areas. And one of my trigger areas are meetings, right? Because a lot of the racial aggression that I experienced, that harm, happened in those meetings where somebody said anything and nobody did anything, right? And it was that awkward silence or laughing and moving on. And I'm still sitting with that and I still leave the meeting with that. Why other people are thinking, "Mm, that was I hate that Jim said that, but uh, moving right along, like I don't get the opportunity to move right along.
0: Yeah, indeed. And uh, it's interesting you said the word trigger. We had, maybe about a year or two ago, we had BJ Fogg on the show on an entirely different topic, talking about creating good habits and changing behaviors. And he used the word trigger as what are some of the things that are already happening in your day as a trigger to invite you to change your behavior? and. While the context is really different, I think there's an interesting intersection here of when we see things like this happen or we see one of those responses of everyone laughing or there's that awkward silence. Like for me, one of the things reading this book coming out of this is thinking that for me should be the trigger for me to do something. And Mm -hmm. it may be in that moment saying something. It may be saying something afterwards. I mean, there's different contexts, of course, of when, what should happen next. But the decision should almost never be that I do nothing and I just completely let that go.
1: A hundred percent. I know you can't see me, but I'm like, yes, yes, that's exactly it, right? And I think some people get so um, stuck on oh, I'm, I'm nervous to say something in the moment. And it doesn't always require for you to say something in the moment, but it requires you to do something, right? So that might be leaving the meeting, having a conversation with that person one-on-one. It might be going to HR and saying, hey, I just wanted, I noticed that there's some behaviors by one of my colleagues in meetings, and I just wanted to notate that, right? Those are things that bystanders can do. And I think we all have to figure out where our comfort level is, but doing nothing, if you call yourself an ally or you want to be an inclusive manager, doing nothing is not helpful.
0: When I was in college, Minda, I took training to teach first aid classes through the American Red Cross. And one of the things that they would teach in first aid, and we would teach the people who came in the community, is when something happens, an incident, an emergency... You have to be really clear to who's going to do what, who's going to call 911, who's going to help someone, because otherwise the bystander effect takes effect and no one ends up doing anything because people just kind of freeze. And I I think it it was interesting, like that word showing up here, and you cite the work of Kelly Charles Collins in the book about bystander intervention in the workplace. And like, okay, what can we do in a situation like this where all of a sudden like, oh, something just happened. And I don't want to be that person that just freezes and doesn't do anything. And one of her invitations is something she says she she calls "make good trouble." Tell me about what that looks like.
1: (laughs) Yes, you know, so I I love Kelly's work because, you know, we all understand that we all have. But it, it takes courage, right? The, the definition of courage is the ability to do something that frightens one. And it takes courage to activate or say something or do something. So that's not lost on me. But making good trouble means that you're just not going to let it go, right? You know, so Kelly talks about how would you want someone to show up for you? And often people will say, well, I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to start any trouble, but the trouble has already (laughs) begun, you know? So together we can figure out what is the right steps. And again, to your point, Dave, it doesn't necessarily mean that you call somebody out on virtual or in-person meetings, but thinking through what are the steps that I'm going to take when this happened? Because nine times out of 10, it's one particular or two particular people who are always doing these things, right? They're always saying these things. So what are you going to do to make sure that they don't think it's okay anymore, right? And again, that could be, yes, talking about it in the moment. It could be after the fact, it could be going to HR. It could be talking to your manager. Like there's so many opportunities for us to show up And doing nothing is not creating that good trouble. And so I'm really looking forward to everybody creating good trouble in the workplace, because once we signal to those, you know, people who do tend to do the harm more so than others, then they'll start to think about, oh, I can't do or say those things anymore. And they'll be more conscious of how they're showing up because we're not letting them off the hook, right? We're checking the bias,
0: yeah, indeed. And I think a lot of us like to think of ourselves as someone who would do that and yet when it actually happens, oftentimes we miss that opportunity. And I'm curious as you've worked with folks and seen different situations happen in different organizations, what is something that helps that person who's the bystander who doesn't doesn't say the words, the the racially charged words themselves to actually Take that first step to do something and not just let it go.
1: Yeah. Again, I think it's putting yourself in the shoes of someone else, right? So, Dave, if you thought, okay, well, what would it be like for me to be in a meeting? And if I were Minda and I experienced some of the things that she has or some of the, the jokes that that have rolled off colleagues' tongue, how would I want someone to show it for me? And then from there, you can think, you know what? I'd like someone to at least come to me after the fact and acknowledge that that was not appropriate and apologize to me to say, hey, I'm sorry that I didn't step up in that moment, but I wanted you to know that that was not okay and that I'm going to have a conversation with so-and-so afterwards, right? But I think just at least coming and saying, hey, I'm sorry that I failed you in that moment, that, that starts the conversation, right? And I think that if we could just normalize and humanize that type of conversation and that type of action, it'll become more normal and it'll be a muscle that we continuously flex, right? But it's not enough for us to notice that it's happening and not do anything about it. So in New York, it says, see something, say something, right? So figure out what's that something going to be. And we all know it's going to happen at some point. So get your couple of things ready, you know, jot it down if that's what you need to, but here are the steps that you're committing to taking when you do notice it happening in the workplace.
0: Well, the other thing that Kelly invites us to do is don't be the hero, right? Like we (laughs) feel like there's like, there's two choices. It's an on off switch. Either I let it go or I need to rise up in the moment and give a speech and really confront. And there, and there's, there's a time for that perhaps. Right. But there's also a lot of the in-between and what I'm hearing you say is like, you can take a step that gets you in moving in that direction even if it's not the bigger thing that maybe you wanted to do or that the situation called for right
1: exactly and i think that's what scares a lot of us off right because we think we have to rise up in the moment and put you know our superman cape on and tell everybody don't ever do that again and and that's not always what the situation calls for right we have to lean on our emotional intelligence to know what's the right move. Right. And it may, you may never do that in a meeting. You know, I've never, Dave, I've never been in a meeting where I've rose up and (laughs) called somebody out, you know what I mean? But so it, it takes time, but I think there's ways in which we can show up that feel authentic to us. And I would invite your listeners to figure out what that authenticity looks like and commit to doing something right. If you've been one of those people that have observed it happening what are, what are a step, what's a step you're willing to take so that you make the workplace better than you found it?
0: When you've taken some of those steps in the past, Minda, either something that was directed at you or someone that was something that was directed at someone else, what's something you found that's been helpful in taking a step on your end that's worked for you and feels right for you in the moment?
1: Yeah. You know, one time I was at an event and there was... Uh, a transgender woman who was having a conversation with me and another person. And the other party kept referring to the transgender woman in the wrong pronoun. And I remember being in the moment, right, having this conversation. I didn't know either one of them, uh, but we are at this event. Long story short, it dawned on me <laughs> that this was an opportunity for me to show up for this person, right? Instead of just letting this person, this other party continue to inflict harm. And when it when I was made aware internally of it, I then said to both of them, I said, she said, blah, 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 blah. And I affirmed what she was saying. And when I used that language, Dave, that gentleman, the other person in the conversation, he started using the correct pronoun. And I didn't have to shame him. I didn't have to make it a big scene, but I affirmed how that person wanted to be addressed in just that small little modification, then signaled to him that this is not a place where you can continue to harm people. And he changed his behavior. And I'm so glad that in that moment, I was able to recognize this is an opportunity for me to show up for this person.
0: What a great example of the power of taking a small step versus saying nothing and just letting it go, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the manager's pledge that you have actually in the appendix of the book. And you invite managers, those of us especially who who do manage teams to think about what we can do differently. And one of the things that you write in the pledge is, for a manager, I will learn how to humanize the experiences of all my colleagues and seek to understand and listen to their perspectives and lived experiences, particularly when they differ from my own. When you think about that kind of manager, what's different about how that person acts and behaves versus someone who's not doing that?
1: Wow. You know, as you read it, Dave, I'm thinking, I wish I would have had a manager like that <laughs> that was willing to, you know, commit to being, to learning, to growing, to listening. And I think that that's where what we need more of. We need culturally competent managers who are willing to listen, right? Willing to have courageous conversations. Doesn't mean they get it right every time, but they're committed to the growth, right? Oftentimes you meet certain managers and they'll be like, no, that's not what I meant. You took it the wrong way. They're not even willing to have the hard conversation. So it just creates this lack of psychological safety. And so a manager who's willing to be emotionally intelligent, a manager that's willing to commit to equity is a place where more people can thrive and not just survive. The last thing I'll say is Kim Scott, who wrote a book that maybe many of your listeners have read, it's called Radical Candor. And oh, yeah, she's been on the show. Yeah, yeah. So Kim is awesome. And she she said this to me after she had a chance to read the book. She said, if you want to be a better champion for your colleagues who have experienced racism at work or a boss who creates a work environment that heals rather than re-traumatizing your employees, This is the book for you to read now. And I think that that's the piece, right? We can't listen and we can't be supportive if we don't understand what our team is dealing with and grappling with. And just because we work at the same place doesn't mean we experience the workplace the same.
0: You know, when you said that, Amanda, and and thinking, especially when you said a moment ago, I wish i had had a manager like that. You know, I'm thinking about one of the other themes that really came up for me in the book is this theme of people in power in, in your career who said some version of, you know, when it became apparent that someone was behaving badly in their organization, They came back with some version of, yes, they're behaving badly. Just ignore them. They don't really mean it. And they would sort of dis- they would acknowledge the behavior, but they would dismiss it and basically say, don't pay any attention to that. And mm-hmm. I was struck by how often that has happened to you in your career and how many managers, have said something like that. What is it about that that's so painful?
1: Yeah, it's really trigger. It's an, I'm going to use triggering again, Dave, because a manager's role, in my opinion, is to eliminate obstacles in the workplace, not to compound them. And if you can't go to your manager, who can you go to in the workplace? If your manager is not going to hear you out, is not going to create a space in which your colleagues can be respectful then what are you supposed to do? And and for me, I've heard countless black and brown women, people of color tell me that the most harm that they've re- felt in the workplace is because their managers don't believe them or they dismiss it. And I think that if we could at least, that's why the manager's pledge is so important. Can we at least get some managers to commit to the process, right? Not dismissing it because when you dismiss it, you're sending us back into the lion's den. And I think that we can, create more equitable spaces if we first just listen to your point dave even if it's a different perspective a different experience because you may not experience that but i might every single day so what are we going to do about that right and it's about the solution it's not necessarily about the aggression yes but how do we solve it and i think if we can all get on that same page it just makes for a better workplace
0: you said the phrase commit to the process a moment ago and The manager who's listening to this, who maybe has caught themselves saying to someone before, oh, yeah, I get it. They're just behaving badly. Just ignore it. What would be the next step for them in committing a bit to that process?
1: Yeah. You know, I think one thing that I talk about in the book is meeting norms, right? Norms on each team. And I think if you notice that some of the bad behavior is happening on team meetings or on, you know, virtual conference calls or whatever have you, addressing that as a whole, it could be at an all staff meeting or a team meeting saying, you know, I really want us to commit to making a safe space for everyone. I want everyone to, you know, I apologize first if I haven't shown up for every team member in the way that I need to, because where it starts, Dave, is trust. Managers have to rebuild trust with their team, with everyone on their team. And I think acknowledging that maybe there's been some missteps, but you're committed to the process so that everybody feels like they belong. And, you know, even after everything I've experienced in the workplace, if even today, if I had a manager reach back out to me and just say, you know what, Minda, I'm sorry that I failed you. After reading your books, I'm committing to making sure my teams no longer have that type of bias, have that type of aggression on my teams. That goes a long way, the acknowledgement, right? And I think the painful part for most of us in the workplace who are one of few is that we don't even get the acknowledgement. It's always dismissed. So let's rebuild trust so that we can believe What you say in demonstration.
0: One of the other lines in the manager's pledge is even if I make a mistake, I commit to the daily practice of being a better manager who's committed to equity for all. Reading that, I think that is the stopping point for a lot of us. One of the stopping points is being really fearful that we're going to say the wrong thing, that we're going to use the wrong language, that we're not going to be inclusive. And as a result, Sometimes we err toward silence and say nothing. And I think one of the clear messages I get from your work and the work of so many others is we're going to mess this up. We're going to screw it up. And we, we just need to enter in a space where we're, we're expecting and ready to make mistakes and to be willing to talk about those mistakes and acknowledge those mistakes when they happen. Aren't, I mean, it just seems like such an important place for us to get to.
1: Absolutely. And and I'm glad you, you mentioned that, Dave, because we are going to make mistakes. I'm going to make them, you're going to make them, but it's what we do after those mistakes, right? Do we continue to make them or do we make strides for, for better? You know, I keep hearing people say, let's return back to normal in the workplace. And it's like, no, actually we have to return back to better, you know, and in order for us to do that, what are some things that aren't working in our teams or in our communication, right. And thinking about it, you know, the one thing I'll say Dave is recently a report came out and it it said that 54% of black employees felt like they belonged for the first time during the pandemic. And if you can imagine feeling like you belong when you, when you had to work from home for the first time, and much of it is because they didn't have to experience the daily micro and macro aggressions and if we have managers who are committed to equity, committing to creating a safe space. So when people are in a workplace together, they don't fear what's gonna happen or what's gonna be said. We can change those numbers and together we can do that. And th- that's what makes me optimistic. If people are aware and willing, we can commit to this.
0: There's a beautiful Japanese word that you highlight in the book called Kinsuji. And it's a, it's a practice, a pottery practice. Could you share that word? this is such a wonderful analogy, I think, for where we all want to get to.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because what we know to be true is that the workplace is not working for everybody the same. And oftentimes, because we've had communication breakdowns, we've had, you know, injustices on various levels, everything feels like broken right now, right? Nothing feels normal for a lot of people. And what I think about the Japanese Kintsugi message is we get to put that puzzle back together. We get to recreate a workplace, a picture of a workplace that's more beautiful, that's more equitable, and that creates those safe spaces. So even though we've made mistakes, Dave, even though there has been some things said and done in the past we get to get together, create a better version of a workplace that works for everyone with those pieces, right? And if we do it right, if we commit to the process, then we create a beautiful, equitable workplace. And I know it sounds very utopia type, but, you know, just a few small acts of modification in our behavior can really create a better environment for all people, not just for, you know, women of color, but for everybody. And I think that, we have to acknowledge these pieces that have been broken, but together we can create a new picture, a better version of the workplace, one that is equitable. And and, and I'm excited for that, Dave.
0: Me too. And I, I love the analogy and the kintsugi uh, pottery. I went and looked at some of the photos after reading the book of the pottery, and it's, uh, it's just this really amazing practice of the broken pottery and then reassembled using lines of gold. And What's really interesting about it is that the reassembled product actually in some ways is more beautiful than the original. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's just a wonderful it's a wonderful place of hope for me and for all of us who have been so broken in so many ways and made so many mistakes, that we can actually do better and we can get to a place that is, yes, different than if it hadn't happened before, but also has still the opportunity to be at a place where we're really champions of justice in the workplace and in our own lives. And it's, it's just really a wonderful message of hope.
1: Thank you. And I like that, champions of justice. If we could all commit to that, we'll definitely create a better image.
0: Yeah, indeed. One of the other invitations you make in the pledge is, I will share my experiences and educational journey to help other managers create restorative justice practices. What's a first step on that for someone who hasn't really ever thought intentionally about what they might do to share maybe they've done some reading they've done they've listened to an episode like this but they haven't necessarily shared it with others
1: yeah i think that that's the piece that we have to do, be willing to be vulnerable with each other to admit that You know, if I'm experiencing this as a manager and it's been difficult for me, maybe some of my colleagues are also experiencing broken pieces right on their team. And how do we create a a better a better image of that? And so I would invite everyone to also share this information with other other managers, because let's be honest, Dave, many of us who've become managers, we never really got any formalized management training. Right. We're just going into it, hoping not to make a mess of things at times. But if we're intentional about at least creating safe spaces it makes us better people managers. It makes us better humans. And so definitely take take the process and talk and share right with your other leaders and say, hey, I've been thinking about the way that we've been doing things and I'd love to share this manager's pledge with you. I'd like to share the book and maybe we can all commit to equitable practices and just open up the conversation, right? Take that first step. Don't hoard it just for your team. Let's make the entire workplace better.
0: Yeah, indeed. And it's it such an opportunity to make the world better with the with the opportunities right in front of us and i you know so many of us as kids we had so many dreams of like making the world a better place we hear that phrase all the time and we still do that in lots of ways we donate to charity we volunteer our time we look for the organizations to support in the world and all those things are like really great things to do right and then we miss what's right in front of us the meeting that's happening today that we're facilitating and we don't say something. And perhaps even more an opportunity for us directly to make the world better and the lives and emotions and experiences of people better each day. And I, ju- I just hope folks will take this as an invitation and seeing those moments and not pass them by and and do what you invite, to, which is just to take that one first initial step to do something a little different, to go a little further than you might have done in the past and then share it. And what a great place if people really move toward that.
1: Absolutely. If we each commit to taking a step in a a better direction, it creates a better workplace. And all we have to do is take the step and that'll feel a little bit better. And then when we'll take another step and another step. And before you know it, it's second nature.
0: You and I last talked a year ago when we talked about the memo and a lot has happened in the world in the last year. And one of the things that's happened is you've written this book. And as you've written this book and you've done obviously a lot online over the last year or so. I'm curious, what's one thing that you have changed your mind on?
1: Yeah, I I love this question so much. And I I would say that I wasn't 100% sure if the workplace could change, right? I I thought, well, you know, it's been built on a lot of inequalities. And I, I don't know if it could really get better. But the more that I think about equity, the more I think about where we are, and people's willingness to at least have listen to hard hard topics, engage in hard conversations and be better listeners, that I've changed my mind. I do believe we can create an equitable workplace that works for everybody where no one feels left behind. And so I'm really excited and I've changed my mind about that. I'm doubling down on, on, on the work, right? And saying that if we all take that first step, then we can create a better workplace right now, but also for the next generation.
0: Have there been any specific moments that you can recall in last year that really led to you changing your mind on that?
1: Yeah, I I think that the fact that we're even talking about racial justice is a big leap because when I was in my 15-year career, Dave, nobody was talking about race in the workplace the way we do today. And I never thought I'd see the day where we would be talking about what it's like to be a Black woman or a woman of color, a person of color in the workplace in the ways that we do now. So the fact that we were able to get to this point it gives me a lot of hope that we can not just stop at the talk, but we can actually move into action. And and that's where the magic will really start to happen.
0: Minda Hartz is the author of Right Within, How to Heal from Racial Trauma in the Workplace. Minda, so grateful for your work. Thank you, Dave. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 404, How to Build Psychological Safety with Amy Edmondson. Of course, psychological safety so important in all of our workplaces, directly relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion in so many ways. And Minda cites Amy's work several times in her book and the invitation for all of us to think and consider Uh, Amy's work on psychological safety, episode 404, if you'd like to dive in more. It's a great compliment to this conversation. I'd also invite you to check out my past conversation with Minda on episode 506, How to Support Women of Color. We did a deep dive on her first book, The Memo, in that conversation. It's a great adjunct to this conversation as well, episode 506, for more details on that and some practical ways all of us as leaders can do a better job. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 510, How to Reduce Bias in Feedback, with my guest, Therese Houston. Uh, Therese is really an expert at looking at feedback, has done a ton of research on it over the last few years and you know so many of us never received any training or schooling on how to give feedback. Maybe we got a little bit in a leadership training course at some point, but most of us learned by observation along the way. And that's good in some ways, but it's also challenging because we also have inherited many of the biases that have showed up in feedback over the years. Therese really, in that conversation, does a masterful job at helping us to examine where bias shows up for many of us in feedback, especially as managers, and how we can do better practically to give more appropriate feedback and to create the kind of workplace culture we want. Episode 510 for that. All of those conversations you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. This episode will be filed under diversity and inclusion. Many episodes we've had, especially in recent years on this topic, it's one of the most critical competencies for leaders in today's workplace, regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of the organization or industry you're in. I'd invite you to check out some of the other episodes on diversity and inclusion. And you can do that easily by setting up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. When you do that, you're going to get access to the entire library, searchable by topic of all the episodes I've aired since 2011, plus access to the member cast, my weekly leadership guide, all of the free audio courses, and a ton more inside, including my own personal library. All of the links I find throughout the week on leadership topics, but also lots of other topics too, and things that I include in the weekly leadership guide. All of those are databased from the last several years. You can go in there and track down whatever you're looking for, especially if you're looking for a credibility piece for your team or for an employee or maybe a client. It's a great starting point. I've done a lot of the work for you. The free membership is accessible to anyone. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set it up, and you'll be off and running in just a few seconds with full access to all of those resources. Next week, I'm glad to welcome David Hutchins back to the show. He's an expert on storytelling, has been with us several times before. He's going to be teaching us the four mistakes that leaders make in storytelling. You'll love that conversation. And it'll give you lots of practical things to take action on right away. Have a great week and see you back on Monday with David.